Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. The big question, the old question, is there life after death? A big discussion among philosophers. But it's a silly question. Is there life after death? What kind of question is that? Are you alive after you die? (laughs) It's a silly question. If you're alive, you haven't died. And if you died, you're not alive. It really is a, a strange question because What exactly is death? What happens when a living person suddenly is not living anymore? What happened? In other words, can death come alive? No. So why can life die? I mean, we're used to it. <laughs> we got used to it. Yeah, people die. But, but what's the sense behind it? If something is alive, how can it suddenly not be alive? Just like if something is dead, how can it suddenly come alive? So if I told you that somebody got out, out of his grave after a couple of years, you wouldn't believe me. But I'm telling you, somebody was living for a hundred years, and then he died. You believe me. Why do you believe me? The simple reality is, what is alive is always alive. And what is not alive is never alive. So we're made up of a body and the soul, and the Shema. Then the Shema is always alive. It's a living thing. The body doesn't have a life. But when you breathe a Neshama into a body, the body lives off the Neshama. As long as they're together. When they separate, the body can't live because it doesn't have a life. And the soul can't die because it's a living thing. So that's why the question, is there life after death? It's a strange question. What's alive and what's dead? So the Torah tells us, when a person passes away, the body goes back to from where it was taken. The soul goes back to who gave it. Everything goes back to its origin. The body was created from earth, it should go back to the earth. The soul comes from heaven, it goes back to heaven. So what died? Nothing. 
What we mean when we say died, we mean the connection, the relationship between the soul and the body, that connection ended. So now the body is a body, it was never really alive, and the soul is a soul, it can't die. So where does the soul end up when it leaves the body? So first let's take a look at what is a soul? There's a human soul and there's a Jewish soul. They both have a complete personality because a soul is made up of intelligence, emotions, and behavior. So a person walks. Where does this ability come from? The body can't walk. The soul animates the body and it wants the body to walk. The body obeys. And that's called a healthy body. A healthy body responds easily to what the soul wants. So you want to move your leg, it moves. <clears throat> if you want to move your leg and it doesn't move, go to a doctor. Somebody said, uh, there were these soldiers during the war, and uh, they had a, a quiet moment, and the soldier said, I'm going to sleep. He says, you're going to be able to sleep? There's noise, there's shooting, there's... He said, my body obeys me. When I tell it to sleep, it sleeps. That's, that's really the nature of a soldier. The soldier is trained that his body does what it is told to do. Actually, a chassid trains the same way. Your body has to be obedient. When the soul tells it to do something, it must do it. Even if it's difficult, uncomfortable, or whatever. So that's a healthy human being. The combination of a neshuma with a body. But the body has to be completely dedicated and obedient to the neshama. So what happens when a person is not well? It means that there's some resistance or some blockage. Your neshama's message is not reaching that body, that part of the body, or that part of the body doesn't hear anymore. So it doesn't respond to the soul. When a person is born, he's given a name. The soul in heaven doesn't have a name. Yeah, they're all alike. <laughs> it's in the Shama, they all look alike. They don't have names. But when they come into a body, we give a name. And by the way, when a baby is born, the sooner you can give the name, the healthier. Because the name is essential 
in the connection between your soul and the body. Because by nature, the soul and the body have nothing in common. The soul is alive, and the body is not. That's already a big difference. The soul is spiritual, the body is physical. Another huge difference. The soul is ambitious, the body is lazy. That's another big difference. So to bring them together is a little bit of a miracle. To make that connection work, you have a name. And that's why we're told that if a person faints, what does that mean? The soul is pulling away from the body, is withdrawn from the body. How do you bring a person back when they fainted? You call their name. And they respond. There's a famous story. The Rebbe, the Tzemach Tzedek in Lubavitch, was a little boy. He was an orphan. His mother had died. So he spent a lot of time with his grandfather, with his Zaydin. He was a very wise child. He was going to be the famous Rebbe when he grows up. So he was sitting on his father's lap. His father was learning, studying. And the little boy, he was like three or four, he wanted his father's attention. So he pulls on the lapel, he says, Zayde. And his grandfather said, this is not a Zayde, this is a jacket. So the little boy takes the, his grandfather's beard and he says, Zayde. And his grandfather says, that's not a Zayde, that's hair. A while later, he goes to play. And he goes behind his grandfather. And he says, Zayde. And his grandfather turns around. And he says, ah, ah that's the Zayde, I gotcha. When you respond to your name, your whole essence responds. That's why you're not allowed to mention God's name for no reason. Because when you mention his name, he turns around. You got his attention, and then you're not saying anything. So it's not nice. The name is a powerful influence that brings the neshama back into the body when it, when it fainted. So with a little girl, we try to give the name as soon as possible. With a little boy, you give it at the, at the bris. So it has to be eight days later. So the soul is basically a personality, a living mensch, and it's what makes it possible for the body to move, to speak, to think, to feel, and to understand. So what is a human being? A human being is able to function. This is called behavior. He is able to connect emotionally, love, hate, compassion. And he's able to understand abstract things. 
That's a soul. So when you have a relationship with somebody you love, what's experiencing that love? Not the body, the soul. When the soul leaves the body, does it lose that emotion? Does it lose that feeling? No, why should it? So what remains when the soul leaves the body? All your memories, all your experiences, all your feelings, all your knowledge, your whole life remains in the neshama. The only thing that doesn't remain is everything you ate. <laughs> that stays in the body and it disappears eventually. But all experience is the soul's activity and the soul never loses it. So when a soul leaves its body, is it still your father? Is it still your mother? Is it still your best friend? Is it still your husband or wife? Absolutely. Why should that change? <clears throat> now, there are two souls. The human soul can fall apart. It can die because it's a created thing. But the godly soul, the second soul that we have, can't die. It's, it's eternal, it's a piece of God. God can't die, the soul can't die. So here's the difference. The human soul is afraid of dying. The godly soul is not. So the fear of death, the, the uh, survival instinct, the, the will to live, is in the human soul and in the godly soul, but the human soul lives with fear. The godly soul lives with confidence. It's not going to die. When a body gets buried, the soul that was in that body doesn't want to leave. It gets really attached to the body. So we sit Shiva, when God forbid, when somebody passes away, we sit Shiva. Why seven days? Why not seven weeks? Sounds a little more realistic. You're only sad for seven days? And besides, why are we told how to be sad? Be sad however, however you feel. But Jewish law, the Torah says, you must grieve for seven days, and at the end of seven days, you must stop. <laughs> how does that work? I think the meaning is, sitting Shiva means Stay in touch with the soul of the person you lost. Because what is a funeral? A funeral means you don't just let the body go to the cemetery, you go with it. In Hebrew, the word for funeral is levaya, which means accompany. Accompany the body to its grave, to its resting place. But once the body is in the earth, now you have to accompany 
the soul in its journey. You don't just walk away. So the Torah has to tell us what is happening to that soul. So we're told, for seven days the soul is struggling. It can't let go of the body. It doesn't want to. So it's in pain, it's unhappy, it doesn't, it, it's, it's neither nishtahin, nishtaher, you know. So you have to empathize, you have to feel what the soul is feeling, and in that way stay connected. How do we know what the soul is feeling? So we are told, the first three days is the worst. That's why the first three days of Shiva is very serious. The next four days, not so bad, but painful for the soul. So, don't go making a party, don't, don't forget the soul and go back to business as usual. Feel with the soul, stay connected through sympathy, empathy, but at the end of seven days, the soul is not suffering. So get up and go back to business. If you don't want to, that's fine. But now you're just feeling what you feel. You're not in touch with the soul anymore. Because the soul is not as unhappy as you. That continues until the 30th day. Still a big adjustment. By the 30th day, the soul has settled into being a soul. For a year, it's still adjusting. So that whole year we say Kaddish. By saying Kaddish, we are helping the soul through its adjustment. The adjustment takes a maximum of 12 months. By the end of 12 months, the soul is happier than you are. So you don't disturb the soul by being unhappy about the soul. Because then you're making the soul suffer. I just had an experience where I was asked to speak to a young couple who had a terrible tragedy. They lost a nine-year-old child. I shouldn't know from it. Very sudden, an aneurysm. She wasn't sick. She wasn't, she wasn't uh, there was no signs of any trouble. The parents, in fact, were not even home. And by the time they got home, she was gone. Nice, nice people. The man used to put on film. He doesn't want to do it anymore. They kept Shabbos a little bit. He doesn't want to do it anymore. He is angry at God. And he spoke in his city where he was. He spoke to all his friends who were rabbis and so on. They had no answers. He gives up. He doesn't want to hear about it anymore. That's it. He agreed to speak to me when I came into town. So we sat down. And he tells me the whole, they, they both, the 
husband and wife. They, they give up on everything. They don't want to hear anything. They don't want to do anything. They're finished. So I asked them a strange question. Because they already spoke to all the rabbis. So the regular information they already have, and it's not helping. So I said to them, has your daughter visited you yet? Strange question. The husband said, twice. And both times, she was smiling, she was happy, and she was letting me know that she's okay. I said, she's trying to tell you something else also. She's trying to tell you that by you being so angry and so miserable because of her, you're making her miserable. She doesn't want to be the reason that you're so upset. She doesn't want to be the cause of your pain. Why are you doing this to her? Parents don't hurt their children. So when did you stop being her parent? You see, when they went into grieving their daughter, they stopped being the parents of their daughter. I said, you can't stop. She's, a she's your daughter. Take care of her. Don't use her as an excuse for your sadness or for your anger or for your change in life. She doesn't deserve this. In, in, in minutes, the man turned around and said, so should I put on Tefillin now? He's ready to get back into life. So how real is the relationship between a soul on earth and a soul in heaven? It's not even a good question. We all know this is not a mystery. Anyone who's willing to talk about their experience will tell you. They are closer to each other now than they were before. It is such a common thing. A father has children who never talk to him, never call him. They don't want to hear what he has to say. They live separate lives. But when the father passes away, look what happens. The children sit there, what do you think he would want? What should we write on this? Would he like that? Would he want that? No, 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 he never liked that. All of a sudden, they know him. They know what he wants, they know what he thinks, they know what he would like. They never acted this way during life. But when the father dies, all of a sudden he becomes real to his children. So we all know from experience, this is not, this is not mysticism. The soul is real. The relationship is real. So there's a custom, there's a minhag, on Pesach, by the Seder, you ask four questions, right? Who do you ask these questions? To your father. So the minhag, the custom is, 
that when the child asks the four questions, he first says, Tate, ich will bei dir fragen vier kashes. You start by saying, Father, I want to ask you four questions. And then you ask the questions. What happens when your father passes away? You still say it. And when you say, Tate, your father in heaven leaves heaven and comes down to hear what you're asking. Because a father can't resist. A man hears from his child the word Tate, he can't resist. Even if he's in heaven. Even if it's painful for him to make a new adjustment back into earth. But every father will come if you call him. A mother? For sure. So again, the Tzamech Tzedek, the Rebbe in Russia, in Lubavitch, when his wife passed away, he said to his children, you lost a mother, I lost a wife. A mother can be a mother even if she's far away. A mother remains a mother. But a wife who is far away, more painful. It's a greater loss. So your mother is still your mother. But a wife, you need close. Not far away. So what happens when the soul leaves the body? It leaves in stages. It's not sudden. Most people, for about a month before they die, they know it's coming. They know. And they have a little bit of control. It's a very common thing. A woman is old and she's sick and she's, and everybody thinks she's dying and she does not because her granddaughter's wedding is next week. She's not going to die before the wedding. You know, as I said, garnished health. The angel of death cannot get her to leave and miss that wedding. <laughs> so she, so they know, they feel it, and they get ready emotionally to passing away. My mother passed away not long ago. She was 101. And the last time the doctor came to see her, she said to the doctor, think I can still live? Doctor says, as long as you want. She says, okay. <laughs> and she passed away. So she decided, okay, it's time to go. They know. <coughs> Particularly people who die young, like very young, all their life, they know that they better live quickly because they don't have too much time. So they accomplish so much in a short time that you think, wow, they're so talented, they're so gifted, they're so... They knew they didn't have time to waste, so they lived quickly. And that's necessary because a sudden death is too shocking. 
So God gives you a little bit of a warning, get ready. And that's what aging is. Now, at the moment of death, the soul doesn't just leave. It doesn't want to. <clears throat> For seven days, it fights not to leave. Then it leaves, but it's not too happy about it. And by the end of the year, it has pretty much forgotten what it's like to be a body. Now it's enjoying being a soul. The same is true when you're born. The soul doesn't just come into a body suddenly. That's too shocking. The soul is told in heaven, you're going to be born in 40 days. Get ready. The soul doesn't like that. <laughs> too scary. But it gets ready. That's why in the Torah, Wherever it says that a, a person was given a blessing, you're going to have a child, it's always this time next year. You know, it doesn't take 12 months. Why not in nine months? Because actually it takes 12 months. Nine months is physical, but before the physical begins, the soul has to make an adjustment, get ready, get his mind, in tune with what's going to happen so that it doesn't come as such a terrible shock. It's shocking enough. So the soul is told at the end of life, the soul is told your, your days are ending. Then the first moment of birth is conception, which is really scary. And what happens at conception is the, the, the soul is so frightened that it wouldn't survive. But it knows that God is with, with it. And that gives it the courage to survive conception. King David says in Tehillim, in the Psalms, when my mother and father abandoned me, God took care of me. When was he abandoned? At conception. We are all abandoned at conception. Because conception happens an hour after intimacy. What are parents doing an hour after intimacy? They're sleeping. So when this little tiny baby is conceived, which is the biggest change that you can possibly imagine, you know, birth, you just move a couple inches. <laughs> but in conception, it's like, wow. And, the, and this little tiny baby looks around and says, who's in charge? Who's babysitting? Mother's asleep, the father's asleep, all alone. But God is there. And that comforts the soul. So you listen. Any child who survives conception has already had an experience with God. Maybe that's why when you have a near-death experience, 
you suddenly believe in God. How come? Why does a near-death experience change your opinion? It's not your opinion. A near-death experience reminds you of conception and birth because they are a near-death experience. So just like at conception and at birth, you were comforted and you survived because God was there, you survive a near-death experience because you feel like God is there. So then when you get well, you know there's a God. Not belief. You had the experience. This continues, this process, the first 40 days after conception is very uncertain. After 40 days, it stables, it becomes more stable. After three months, that's another stage. The fifth month, and then the ninth month, these are all stages of where the body and the soul are coming together. But it's really interesting. The soul is complete at the moment of conception. It's a whole soul. The soul doesn't grow up. But the body, at the moment of conception, is, is hardly anything. It's a little tiny speck. So the body has to grow. As the body grows, the soul settles into the body. By the ninth month, the soul and the body are pretty solid in their connection. Birth happens, terrible trauma, so that you forget those wonderful months, the nine months in the womb, in the uterus, which is like being in heaven, but you forget because of the trauma. And again, King David says, when I went through the valley of the shadow of death, I was not afraid because you were with me. What is the valley of the shadow of death? being born. But then, for 30 more days, you're not sure that the body and the soul are permanent together. After 30 days from birth, the connection is complete. The godly soul still has to make some adjustments. And when a girl is 12 years old, the godly soul has completely settled in. And when a boy is 13, his soul has settled in. Now he starts to get old. <laughs> now the process of life starts to age him or her. So birth comes in stages. Death happens in stages. What happens when the soul comes to heaven? Whatever that means. If it remembers how to be in heaven, then it's a pleasure. But after 80 years, 90 years, 100 years in a body, it doesn't remember how to be a soul. It still thinks like a body. That's embarrassing. 
because he's in the world of souls and he smells like a body. That adjustment, that embarrassment is what we call Gehenna or hell. What is hell? Hell means it's so embarrassing to come back home and you don't remember anybody's name. <laughs> so you come back to the world of souls and, and you, you're, not, you're not comfortable. But how long can it take until you become comfortable? At the most, 12 months. Now what happens with the body that's in the grave. Even though the body is disintegrating, the soul never completely gives up on the body. Can't. The connection, the attachment that the soul had to the body will never completely end. So when you go to the cemetery, to the grave, of someone you lost. Is that meaningful? Is it different to stand by the grave and talk to your grandfather or to sit at home and talk to your grandfather? Yes, it's different. Because the grandfather or the grandmother is still very attached to that body. Very meaning deeply. And that's why, after Mashiach comes, the soul will go back to its body. Because it can't give up on it. So when we go to the grave of a tzaddik, for example, we are closer to that soul, because the soul never completely leaves that body. Just on our a different subject altogether. Animals can see and feel souls better than we can. So, an animal can tell, walking past a grave, whether the soul, whether the person died within 30 days or past 30 days. Because at 30 days, the soul kind of separates the animal, a dog, can feel the presence of the soul for the first 30 days and then gets up and walks away because the soul left. So you see online all these incredible stories of a dog that refused to leave the grave. And then all of a sudden he picks up and goes. Because the soul left, so the animal left. The, uh, the, the, the law governing that mitzvah is that anyone who has both parents alive must leave the room. Because there's no soul that, that they're connected to to protect them. But anyone who had lost a parent, that parent's soul comes to the synagogue during 
Yisker. So what do we say? We say, I'm going to give charity for you, for your benefit. Why is that? The one thing the soul cannot do is a physical mitzvah. And, and it bothers them. The advantage of life on earth over being in heaven is that in heaven you are comfortable, God takes care of you, you have pleasure, you enjoy heavenly, uh, heavenly pleasures, but you can't do a mitzvah. So God is doing for you, but you can't do anything for him. So we tell the soul, we'll, we will give tzedakah for you. Tzedakah is the most physical mitzvah. And that's what the soul wants to hear. So we're literally doing the soul a great favor by giving tzedakah for them, because they can't. In return, they will do whatever they can to get you some blessings and to get you what you need from heaven. And that's why in Jewish thinking, going to heaven is not such a great thing. Other religions, their whole focus, their whole desire is, I got to get to heaven. In Jewish life, it's, if you can't be here, okay, so you'll go there. But nobody wants to go there because being here is better. Not easier, but better. Because here, you can make a difference. And we would rather be employed <laughs> and active than retired and rewarded. So heaven is a reward, but it's also a retirement. Ultimately, every soul in heaven is waiting to come back to its body. Because heaven can't, can't be permanent. It's a holding pattern. So the soul enjoys the pleasures of heaven, but it really would rather be here. So there will come a time after Mashiach where every soul will come back into its body. Even if the body was cremated. The body will come back together. And its soul will come back to it. You're not allowed to cremate a Jewish body. But if God forbid it happened, like in, in the concentration camps, God, you know, God is not, is not paralyzed. You can make a body come together after it decomposes. He'll make the body come together after it's cremated. 
But to cremate a body is, is disrespectful to the body. So, we are looking forward to making this world what it's supposed to be, a godly world. So Mashiach comes and life on earth becomes perfect. We are waiting somewhat impatiently. Like every morning you get up and you read the headlines and you say, still? Still the same Mashiach, the same craziness, the same stupid, enough already. So we're becoming a little impatient, but at least we can do something to make the world a little better. The soul in heaven is also impatient, but it can't even do anything. So it's worse for the neshama, and they are waiting for Mashiach more impatiently than us. So listen to this little uh, uh, metaphor. A king had four wives. He was a little king. <laughs> so he only had four. He has four wives. One wife he pampered. He took such good care of her. He bought her everything. He, he pampered her. Second wife he showed off. Whenever he went out, this is the wife he took with him to show off his wife. The third wife was very wise, and he would ask her for advice. When he had an issue, a problem, he would discuss it with her. The fourth wife, he neglected. When it came time to die, he said to his first wife, the one that he pampered all the time, come with me. She said, you pampered me all these years, somebody else will pamper me. He said to his second wife, the one that he would always take out, show off, yeah. he said, will you come with me? She said, uh, somebody else can show me off also. He said to the third wife, the one that he asked advice, he says, will you come with me? She said, sure, till the cemetery, but not further. He asked the fourth wife, the one that he neglected, will you come with me? And she said yes. The first wife, the one that we pamper, that's our body. We pamper our body. Oh, I think I'm a little hungry right now. I, I think I'm a little thirsty right now. Remember that commercial for one of the sodas? Obey your thirst. That's how much we pamper the body. Right? When it comes time to die, the body says, uh, I should go with you. You go your way, I'll go my way. The second wife are your possessions, your wealth. When you go out, you show off. 
your car, your watch, your jewelry, your expensive clothes. Comes time to die. <laughs> Can you take it with you? No, somebody else is going to take it and show it off. The third wife is your family, your friends, your support system. When it comes time to die, they say, will I come with you? Sure, the funeral, till the cemetery, but not further. The fourth wife is your soul, your neshama, which you neglect all your life. But when it comes time to go, you ask that neshama, you want to come with me? The soul says, of course. I'll never leave you. So the moral of the story is like this. Our parents, our grandparents, up to 10 generations, you hear this? Up to 10 generations still remember you, care about you, worry about you, and are upset with you because you are their future and they want a better future. So they want you to be better, they want you to be holier, they want you to be smarter, they want you to be more successful, because you are their history. Up to 10 generations. At your wedding, under the chuppah, 10 generations came to see you get married. Because they, you are their future. At a, at a circumcision, when a child, when a little boy is circumcised, all the souls in heaven that still remember their, their grandchild or their great-grandchild or even their great-great-grandchild come to the circumcision. And that's why it's interesting. At the beginning of a chuppah, beginning of a, of a wedding ceremony, we sing a song called Baruch Haba, which means welcome. And everybody thinks we're welcoming the, the, the bride and the groom. No. We're welcoming the souls that came to the wedding. And the same is true at the circumcision. Before the, the male does the circumcision, he, he announces, Baruch Haba. Welcome. Who's he talking to? The baby? He's talking to all those souls who are still concerned, still connected, still identified, and this is their grandchild. This is their future, so they come to the circumcision. And when you say, by the, by the Pesach Seder, when you say, Tate, I want to ask you four questions, your father is there. And when you say Yisker, and you promise to give tzedakah, you have made his day or her day, because yes, they hear you, even when you're not talking to them. But the moral of the story is, we can neglect the body a little bit. You can neglect your wealth a little bit. You can even neglect your family a little bit, but don't neglect your soul. That's forever. So every little neglect in the soul is like a huge neglect because it's forever. 
And that's why we're given so many mitzvot. Every mitzvah is a little connection between the soul and the body and the world. When you bake challah, look at what's going on. The flour, the water, the yeast has now become part of life. It's not just a thing, it's part of life. You bake the challah, the oven, the heat, the fire, the gas, the electric, have all now become alive. They are doing a mitzvah. Your hands, your body, your strength, your mind, involved in a mitzvah. So now your soul sees its body doing something holy. The objects with which you're doing it are now serving a holy purpose. Your kitchen, your oven has now become an object of godliness. The soul feels so comfortable. It's in a godly place. The rest of the week, not so much. It doesn't feel like it's in a godly place. It feels like it's in a foreign place. A place for bodies, not for souls. But when you do a mitzvah, the soul enjoys it, the body is doing it, and the objects, the physical world around you, is being used for a soul purpose. And the soul feels like it's in heaven. So a person who does mitzvahs and doesn't get too hung up on the body, when he leaves the body, it's painless. Because he remembers how to be a soul, he goes right back to it like he never left. Like they say about riding a bicycle. Once you learn to ride a bicycle, you'll never forget. It may be a little rusty, but you don't forget. So while the soul is on earth, we try to give it a little bit of a heavenly pleasure, not just physical pleasure. Now I want to tell you something that isn't written anywhere. It's just current events. There seems to be something going on in the world where human beings all over of all ages, of all backgrounds, just the human condition today compared to five years ago. The human condition is we're not so concerned about our bodies. Did you notice this going on? People take drugs. What are you doing to yourself? This is not healthy. They don't care. They do dangerous things, risky things, just for fun. You say, what are you doing? This is crazy. They don't care. There's something going on where the human soul has gotten bored or tired of being a body. They just don't care anymore. You hear from young children, tell me if, if, if this has happened to you, 
You hear from young children, I didn't ask to be born. Did you ever hear that before in history? <laughs> Can you imagine your grandmother saying, leave me alone, I didn't ask to be born. Unthinkable. Today people are saying that. And what do they mean by it? That they want to kill themselves? Sometimes. But what they're really saying is, I don't see a point. What's the point? Okay, my life is good. It's not perfect. But what's the point? I have to get up tomorrow, go to school, catch the bus, get a good grade, put up with the bully, <laughs> or the kid next, sitting next to me. I don't like the teacher. It's boring. Why am I doing this? What do you tell an 11-year-old boy who says, why do I have to go to school? Leave me alone. What do you tell him? You tell him you have to go to school because that's how you'll make a living 20 years from now. They're not interested. It's getting really, really hard to motivate children to do something. Why? So we call them lazy, we call them spoiled, we call them entitled, we call them arrogant. Why all of a sudden? The soul is demanding more attention. The soul cannot just continue to follow the body. The body needs to eat, we eat. Body needs to sleep, we sleep. Body needs money, go get money. The soul is saying, excuse me, for this I came down from heaven? It's not good enough. So if you don't have an answer to that, you could get depressed. What am I doing here? Every day, the same thing, the same thing. And why am I doing it? Well, because if I don't do it, I won't be able to do it. You see how senseless? You have to go to school today because if you don't, you won't be able to go to school tomorrow. <laughs> you have to go now and get a job because you have to pay your bills. Because if you don't pay your bills today, you won't be able to pay your bill tomorrow. Because you're going to die. People today are saying, what kind, of, what kind of plan is this? I should live my life so that I don't die? This doesn't make sense. We need to have a really good answer for even, even pre-teens. What is life? Don't tell me I have to brush my teeth. Tell me what is life. Why am I here? Why do I have to get up? Why do I have to get dressed? Why do I have to go to school? What are you saying? Why? Where are all these rules coming from? And if you're religious, you better have some good answers. I have to keep kosher? I have to stop working on Shabbos? 
I have to give charity? I have to? Where are these rules coming from? So we're living in a very dramatic time. The old answers are not working because they're not true. You have to go to school because you have to get into college. You have to get into college because you have to get a job. You have to get a job because you have to make money. You have to make money because you got to pay the bills. You got to pay the bills or you won't have and then you're going to die. So you're telling a kindergarten kid that he has to get up early, put on his shoes and catch the bus because if not, he's going to die. <laughs> the kid says, what are you talking about? You've got to give me a better reason. It's, it's a traumatic but exciting time. It's, we finally woke up and the soul is saying, I'm not going to run around in a body just so that I can run around in a body. Give me a purpose. Give me a mission. Give me a job, a real job, that makes it necessary for me to be here. Otherwise, I'm bored. That's not good. So, of course, in the olden days, big philosophers used to ask, what is the purpose of life? Why are we here? Now 11-year-olds are saying it. It's harder to explain to an 11-year-old. But we better find an answer. Because it's a good question. It's a very good question. So the conclusion of this talk tonight is don't worry about what they hear. We need to hear something because we need to know what we're doing. They will help. They are helping. But we got to do the job. And if you're a parent or a grandparent or you want to be a parent or you're going to be a parent, get some answers. People are afraid to get married today. They put it off as long as possible because if they have children, the children are going to ask that question and I don't know what to answer. <laughs>